I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Last week, we considered together how even in the face of a king's wicked directive, insisting that God's people worship a false god, God is able to protect His people. And at the end of the day, in His care of His people and in their confession, their bold confession before the world, He's glorified even among those who formerly mocked Him. Well, moving on now to Daniel 4. We're going to focus on the latter half of the chapter, but we're going to read the whole thing. We see King Nebuchadnezzar writing himself to the people. Now this is a portion of Daniel's book that's written in Aramaic, so uh, that fits. But it is rather unique that this king of a pagan kingdom writes his testimony concerning uh, what happened, how he interacted with the true God. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, and they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. 
Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Amen.
Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you to allow yourself to be challenged by this text. Because here's our temptation. We read this account, this astounding story. And we allow ourselves to have one of two safe responses. On the one hand, we focus on the parts of the story that seem safe. Oh man, the Bible commentaries are full of this approach. We spend time delving into the history of Babylon and the reigns of its various kings and talking about the lexicography and the different writing style that may or may not be found in this area and we debate the various details concerning the medical or the psychological conditions that may be manifested and described in this place and we focus on all of that. It's fascinating. That doesn't challenge us at all. That's one response that we could have to this text. Another is we could let this passage utterly and completely destroy somebody else. We could spend time recasting Nebuchadnezzar as Justin Trudeau or Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Gretchen Whitmer. or I mean, the, the list is endless, right? And say, that's Nebuchadnezzar. That's who needs to hear this. That's who needs to be humble. Safe. Because as long as we're pointing Nebuchadnezzar as a weapon to somebody else, we're not looking in the mirror. And we're not being humbled ourselves. And we're not being brought to an end of our own pride. But that's why God gave us this, this account. Not so that we could weaponize Nebuchadnezzar so as to destroy some other proud ruler in this earth, but so that we could look down the barrel of Nebuchadnezzar, as it were, and be destroyed. And recognize that the pride that led Nebuchadnezzar to stand on the roof of his opulent palace and look out over the glory of Babylon and say, look what I have done for my glory. That same temptation to pride lives within us. And so we need the lesson. We need the challenge that we find in Daniel 4. When we see how God causes this proud monarch to bow before a mightier king. That's the theme that we see here. God causes a proud monarch to bow before a mightier king. And he begins that account of bowing the king as he calls the king to humble submission. That's the first thing we see here. Now, of course, the background of this account is pretty obvious. We don't need to spend much time on it. We're not given the date when this occurs, but it seems likely that Daniel 1 through 4 actually through 6, are all written in chronological order. We get into chapter 7, and, and there we have to kind of intersperse it a little bit. But it's very likely that this happens after Daniel and his friends have been serving Babylon for a number of years. We don't know how many. It may well be, given Nebuchadnezzar's behavior here and his pride, that he's ruled for quite a while. Remember at the very beginning of our story, he had just come to the throne. He overthrew uh, Jerusalem and, and took those captives, really, right at the very beginning of his reign as king of Babylon. So, 
He's been reigning for a while and suddenly he has this vivid dream. Despite the prosperity and the ease that surround him, this dream startles the king, scares him. He calls all of his advisors of various sorts to come and and explain the dream. But as happened back in chapter 2, so it happens again. They they can't do it. This time, they don't even try. Right? Because they know that there's somebody who can. And So finally, he calls Daniel. And he says, Daniel, I need to know what this means. And Daniel, having heard the dream, having taken time to seek God's guidance, he falls silent. God has answered his prayer for insight, but the answer is neither what Daniel expected nor what he desired to relate. Because the dream foretold the coming of discipline that was harsh against the king. It's like when when your child has been running roughshod and you've tried playing good cop and you've tried explaining it to him and finally say, all right, listen, this is the last opportunity you have. Next time we're pulling out all the stops. Next time you're truly going to regret it. Frankly, I'm going to truly regret it. That's what God has just threatened Nebuchadnezzar. Not only he, but the whole kingdom is going to be humble if he doesn't humble himself. The punishment God threatens is is simple, comprehensive. Everything the king loves, everything that delights him will be taken from him. All the power, all the might and the influence, the ability to, to wield an army at his own whim. The ability to determine the disposition of peoples throughout the world. All gone. And he will be brought low. Brought so low, in fact, that the greatest men of the world will see the king of Babylon act like a cow. The man who supervised the creation of the hanging gardens of Babylon one of the seven wonders of the world. The man who had raised up architects who designed this amazing city that seemed to their eyes to be impregnable, who had orchestrated the taking over of numerous kingdoms and incorporating them into Babylon, he would go out and he would graze in the field like a cow. they would be dumbfounded. They would think all the pressure has finally gotten to him. They wouldn't know what to do with him. They would be dumbfounded. And all of his power, all of his authority, not to mention his reason, his ability to understand, his ability to think, would be gone. He'd be regarded as an utter and absolute madman until... Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God wants Nebuchadnezzar to understand and to confess that there is a king greater than him. More than that, that there is a king infinitely greater than him. That the fact that he rules Babylon is not due to his scheming, his planning, his plotting, his brilliance. No, it's due to the sovereign guidance of the true God. And that there are not many gods orchestrating these things together. No, there is one God who gives the kingdom to whom he will and takes it from them at his his appointed time. In the midst of all that, however, Daniel saw that there was hope. Just as when your child gets that warning, 
There will only be one next time and you're not going to be pleased by it. That warning, that bad cop moment, it's hard, but it always comes with hope because the very fact that there is a warning says that you have an opportunity to forestall it. You have an opportunity to prevent it. Don't misbehave, right? Turn yourself. And so Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, Therefore, O king, verse 27, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Turn away from your rebellion. Get rid of your pride. Stop thinking yourself ultimate. Stop putting yourself on the throne that belongs only to God. And instead, he says, break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Instead of thinking yourself so great, Lower yourself to help those who are in need. Instead of using all your power and authority for selfish ends to exalt yourself, exalt those who are in the lowest places. Such a complete turning, such an absolute repentance would require submission of the kind that doesn't come natural to the human heart and a newfound humility for the proud pagan king. Now before we consider Nebuchadnezzar's response to this call to humble submission. We need to ask, do we not also receive that same call? I mean, does this apply only to the Joe Bidens and the Justin Trudeaus and the other world leaders? Or does it not also apply to us? Now, I'm sure there are people who are not tempted at all to pride. There's not a proud bone in their body. They are inherently and implicitly humble even in their heart of hearts. And if that's you, then praise the Lord that He's given you that humble heart. But at the same time, in the words of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Recognize that none of us is beyond pride. And for the rest of us, who maybe don't give in to pride, but we're tempted by it. This is a call for self-evaluation. Ask yourself, when you do something good, who gets the pat on the back? Do you insist on deflecting the glory to God? Do you insist on reminding people that you could only do what God allowed you to do? Or do you just sit silently and accept the praise with a, a self-satisfied grin? And what are your priorities? When you have free time, are you seeking out ways to serve the Lord or seeking out ways to improve your skills so that you can better serve the Lord? How ready are you to do the work that others shun but that still needs to be done? How ready are you to do the hard jobs that no one will notice just because it's an opportunity to serve? My friends, God has given us both our gifts and the opportunities to use them. And many of those opportunities... Young people, old people, many of those opportunities are humbling. It's humbling to sit at home and watch your younger siblings who really don't want you watching them and who will probably get into some kind of trouble that you'll have to clean up. It's humbling to have to do all the housework and all the cleaning that's probably not all that appreciated by the rest of the family. 
that would only notice if you didn't do it. It's humbling to do those same chores that you got to do every day that nobody else seems willing to do. It's humbling to tutor that classmate that really doesn't want to be there and doesn't want to learn the stuff but needs to. It's humbling to do those tasks. But God gives them to us so that we can show His selfless love. And so that we have an opportunity to bring glory to Him. And our temptation is to say, no, let somebody else do that. I want to do something that gets the spotlight. I want to do something that gets the, the honor and the glory. I want to be rewarded. You know, somebody can pat me on the back for a change. And we justify it as though we're never praised, as though we're never given thanks. If that kind of self-evaluation shames you, then God is calling you, just as He called Nebuchadnezzar, to repent. To acknowledge that even the fact that we have life is a gift from God. Every gift that we possess is a gift from God. Every opportunity for service that He sets before us has been set there by God Himself and that when we serve, when we serve, what matters is not whether anybody else notices, much less whether they say something. What matters is whether they praise God for it. Whether they recognize that God has provided. Whether they recognize that God has met their needs. You're just the instrument. That's what he wants us to see. That's what he wants us to pursue. Now Daniel's explanation and plea ends with, Verse 27. And verse 28 relates a remarkable thing. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Everything Daniel described occurred. All that the dream foretold came to pass. All that caused the king to fear and led Daniel to plead. It happened. It's a year later. The king's standing on the roof of his palace, which would have been one of the tallest structures in the city. He's looking out over these great walls of Babylon, the outer one of which was wide enough for two chariots to pass on its top. Perhaps he's seeing the hanging gardens that so delighted his wife who was brought in from a distant wooded land. He's looking at all this beautiful architecture with the, the rivers flowing around the city on both sides in a broad moat. And he says, look at what I have done, what I have accomplished for my glory. And immediately, a voice comes from heaven. It is decreed. The kingdom has departed from you. Short, simple, powerful. You will go and graze like a cow until you recognize that God rules in heaven, that God has given the kingdom, and that he does it at his sovereign command. And immediately, Verse 33 says, that very hour he was driven out, entering into the insanity of a man who thinks himself an ox, a cow, feeling the utter loss of all that he had misused as a means of glorifying himself. When Nebuchadnezzar described his dream to Daniel, he recalled the words of the angel, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. This is more than just the loss of his reputation and authority. This is the loss of his sanity. This is the loss of his understanding. This is the loss of his manliness. Romans 1 says that all men understand that God exists. All men understand 
the essence of what that means, that we're to worship Him, that we're made to serve Him. And yet in their wickedness, in their self-centered sin, men reject that, refuse the Creator, and prefer to worship the created. And Romans 1 says that God gives them over to the ugliness of that depravity. But that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He who had exalted himself was delivered into the depths of humility. The one who worshipped his self-sufficiency was abandoned to himself. Nebuchadnezzar had given himself credit for all the glory of his kingdom, but now the blessing of God is removed and the glory is gone. Not only are his power and his influence removed, but all the admiration and praise of men is replaced with mockery and embarrassment. He's like a career politician who has carefully molded his image as that of the, the guy who gets things done, the guy who, who is at the helm. And all of a sudden he's plunged into scandal. And the man whom everyone admired now is the butt of jokes on late night television. He's out in the field grazing like an ox. Absolutely foolish. Now there's no doubt God doesn't bring that kind of humbling on all men. When He does humble us, it's seldom as drastic as what he did to Nebuchadnezzar. But brothers and sisters, he does still humble us. He does still bring folks to our knees. We need to know that. Not every hard providence that we encounter is God humbling us so that we will repent of our sin. But you know what? Sometimes it is. Young people expect that. Sometimes you don't get away with it. You get the full weight of the consequence of your sin, and that's going, that's God going, wake up. Sometimes all that you attempted, all that you tried, collapses like a, a house of cards hit by a strong wind. And that's God saying, recognize that you're not on the throne. Acknowledge that you're not the one in charge. God has called each and every one of us to humble ourselves before the true king. To recognize that there is one God and we're not him. And that everything we have depends on him and is intended to serve him. If we fail to heed that call, God may well choose to humble us. And if he does, woe to us if we don't recognize it. Because if we don't recognize it, then our seven times are going to be that much longer. Do you understand what that seven times thing is all about? The, the word there for times describes a defined period of time. Seven is the number of perfection, the number of completion. So in other words, Nebuchadnezzar is going to endure this time of humbling, this time of punishment for the perfect amount of time, the perfect fullness of time, until he fully recognizes who the true God is, where the glory really needs to be placed, until he gets it, He's going to be eating grass. Same's true for us. If you learn your lesson now, if you humble yourself before God now, if you resolve by the power that He gives you to serve God now, praise the Lord. But if you don't, 
Well, He may humble you with sickness or with defeat or with disaster or heartache or pain. God might bring you to an end of yourself by any means He designs. And when you are afflicted, you need to ask, is this the humbling of God? Is this intended to teach me a lesson? If it is, He'll make sure you know it. But don't try to convince yourself it's not if it is. If you've got that great big sin that's been really harassing your conscience and you're suddenly brought to your knees, don't say, wow, that's quite a coincidence. It's not. If you've been getting away with it and thinking yourself pretty clever and all of a sudden everybody knows, don't try to talk yourself out of it. Don't try to deepen the hole that you've already done. Humble yourself. That the time that God pours out that humbling might be shortened. And not only for yourself, for the sake of your children. We have been blessed with the addition of another covenant child. How great is that? That is just a wonderful thing. But you know, very shortly, we're going to baptize Isla. And when we do, her parents will acknowledge her a child of the covenant. Sinful from the time of her conception, but also promised the restoration that comes through Christ. And we, we are going to promise, even as they promise to raise her up in the Christian faith, we're going to promise to support them in that. To encourage her by our prayers, by our admonitions, by our, our teaching, and also by our example. Now, Isla, just like every one of us, is going to have pride. She's going to need to humble herself. Now, we can't cause her heart to humble itself. But what's she going to see in us? Is she going to see those who think quite a lot of themselves and don't want their sins pointed out and, and want it to look really good for the people outside? Or is she going to see a people who repent of their sins? Who acknowledge when they've gotten too full of themselves? Who confess that only God is good? If we want her to learn this lesson, she's got, to, she's got to see it in us. She's got to see a people who humble themselves, a people who bring themselves low before God. And woe to us if we don't seek to protect her from having to learn that the hard way. Thing is, God's mercy is found even here in the midst of the punishment of King Nebuchadnezzar. Because sometimes, sometimes we do refuse to learn the easy way. We feel the need to experience the consequence of our sin before we'll humble ourselves. And that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. But recall how in his dream, he saw as this great tree is cut down, the command is given that the stump be bound in iron and bronze. What's that all about? It's hope. What happens when you cut down a tree? What happens to the stump? It breaks down. I've got a, a few of them in the woods up by me and they're all rotted and soft and you kick them and pieces fly off. Why? Because the water settles in and begins to rot it. And other branches and stuff fall down on it and they chip off little pieces. And the birds come and they peck at it to get insects out of it and the insects burrow in it. 
That's the way it's meant to be, right? It, it breaks down and pretty soon it becomes dirt again. But if you bind it tight with iron, you prevent the water from infiltrating easily. You prevent other things that may fall upon it from damaging it. You preserve it. God's promising that He will preserve Nebuchadnezzar because He's not done with him. He's going to restore him. He's going to reestablish the tree as it were. And so that's the last thing we see here, how he exalts the king to godly wisdom. Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 34, this is beautiful. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. Think about that a minute. That's a posture of prayer, isn't it? I lifted my eyes to heaven. He's not looking in the mirror anymore. He's not looking at himself anymore. He recognizes that God is higher than him. He's not the apex of humanity. God is. He's not the king of kings. God is. He's not the one with all the answers, with all the power, with all the ability. That's God. At the end of these days, I lifted my eyes to heaven. And suddenly the king's reason, his understanding returns. True understanding. Young people get this. True understanding comes to him alone who recognizes that there is one God and that he is the source of all truth, of all knowledge, of all reason. Apart from trusting in God, you cannot rightly know anything. Get that? Even the unbeliever, they understand a lot of things truly, but only because in their heart of hearts they know that there is a true God. In their heart of hearts they understand that there is a God who made it all and who upholds it all and who keeps it all in order. Nebuchadnezzar gets that. He looks to heaven. And as soon as his understanding returns to him, he lifts his voice in praise to God. He is the one who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar's not. He now understands he's mortal. His wisdom, his power can depart in an instant. His dominion, he says, is an everlasting dominion. Dominion is the authority to rule. Suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar understands that his authority to rule, it's fragile. As great as his kingdom, as solid as his power, it was taken from him. But God's is not. God has authority over the kings of the earth. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. He remembers that first dream. He might be the head of gold, but that rock, carved without the aid of human hands. It's going to dash the entire structure, not just Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, but all the ones that will follow it. And they will blow away like chaff, but that stone, it's going to grow until it fills the whole creation. That's the kingdom of God. He's the one who's really in charge. In fact, everyone and everything in this world are as nothing compared to God. Whatever this, one, whatever this God desires to do, He does. And any man, Nebuchadnezzar knows, is a fool who thinks he can stop him. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is confessing there is one sovereign, and it's the Lord. And no sooner does he utter this truth, this confession, he's restored. His advisors come and seek him out. They set him on the throne again. His authority is restored to him. His dignity is regained. He's given even more majesty, but... Note well, in verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar had foolishly boasted that he built up 
all of Babylon's greatness and why? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. It was all about Nebuchadnezzar, what he had done, what he was able to do, the, the, the glory that he would obtain. But not anymore. Now he says, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. Not for my glory, but for those I rule. Not for me, but for them. He's not the center anymore. He's not the goal anymore. He's a servant. And he understands that. Brothers and sisters, this is the lesson that we are called to grasp. God will not be mocked and He will not be ignored. One day, every single one of us will bow before Him. You will either bow in grateful adoration of the One who has given you everything and used you graciously, overwhelmed at His generosity toward you, or you will bow in abject terror before the judge of all men whom you sought to ignore. But you will bow. So you need to ask yourself, where do you stand today? Are you confessing God as the source of all the gifts and all the authority and all the opportunity that you possess? Are you seeking ways to glorify and serve Him? Are you finding ways to love your neighbor and reflect the character of God to them? Or, have you adopted the attitudes of arrogance and self-importance that Nebuchadnezzar had adopted? Parents, do you... Do you demand obedience to your children just because you want them to obey you and because you don't want to be bothered? Or are you seeking to serve them? Are you insisting on their obedience so that they can learn to obey the Lord? Young people, in your sports or in your work, are you doing what you're doing to get an attaboy, to get a pat on the back, to get awards or... Money? Or are you seeking to build up your skills so that you can serve others? So that you can serve God? So that you can glorify Him? Are you seeking to learn so that you can teach? In your work, are you willing to take up the lowly tasks? Or do you scorn them as being beneath you? We must learn to humbly submit to God. Because in doing so, we show our faith. In doing so, we show that Christ is dwelling within us. I mean, He's the one who came worthy of the adoration of everyone, but came not to be served, but rather to serve. And He wants us to follow His example. And one of the clearest ways we can serve our neighbors is by setting this example before them. The leaders of our land, I alluded to this before, the leaders of our land desperately need this lesson. But they won't listen to it if you just send them a tract with the text of, Nebuchadnezzar, of Daniel 4. They'll only listen to it if you set the example before them of selfless leadership. They'll only listen to it if you raise up your children and your children's children to be the kind of godly leaders who will rule not as Nebuchadnezzar did, but as Nebuchadnezzar learned to do. 
so that they can rule beside the leaders of our world. So that they can serve in their cabinets and they can serve as their advisors and they can guide them and lead them by their counsel, but especially by their behavior. And if we raise up our children to do that, and young people and children, if you raise, if you devote yourself to that kind of character, God will use you. The way he used Daniel. To speak in the ear of those who have power, of those who have authority, of those who are misusing what God has given them. To humble them. To bring them low. To show them that there is one God and they're not Him. We're weak. At the end of the day, we are weak. But if we will humble ourselves, and if we will acknowledge the true God, He will delight to use that which is weak to shame the strong, that which is foolish to shame the wise, that which is lowly to demonstrate the truth and the reality of the one who is glorious beyond all imagination. So let's ask the Lord to teach us this hard lesson that we would learn to bow before the true King. And let us ask God to use us in our humility to teach this lesson to others around us who don't yet know Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world that is filled with pride because our hearts following after the corruption of Adam, are filled with pride. And Father, you know that we're not strong enough, we're not committed enough to reject that pride on our own. But we know that you are greater than our sin. You have the ability to humble us. We pray that you would do so. Teaching us to rely not on ourselves and not on other men, but on you. And to acknowledge you as our King. And to serve you in all the opportunities and with all the gifts that you've given. So that looking on us, the men and women around us might see examples of selflessness, of humility. That leads them to seek you. That leads them to desire to serve you. Father, we are weak, but you are strong. Enable us to see that, to confess that to live out that reality, that through us you might be glorified. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.